Okay, well, we're continuing our study in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and tonight we come to one of the most glorious <clears throat> chapters. Of course, they're all rock-solid, doctrinally sound, but uh, assurance of grace and salvation. And we've discussed these covenant graces that come to us of justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance unto life. These are all the previous chapters. <laughs> Those of you who haven't been here. Uh, of good works. And then last week, the perseverance of the saints. <clears throat> You'll remember I made some something some, some 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 comment to the effect of as wonderful as salvation is, if we have no guarantee that we'll have it till the end, it kind of loses its value, right? So the perseverance of the saints is something that's altogether glorious. Well, I would add to that, you know, with this week, that having assurance of our salvation, knowing that it's secure, but also walking in assurance is a blissful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And, of course, there are some that um, do doubt their salvation. Even the confession is, we probably won't get to uh, paragraph four, but it says, true believers may have this assurance of their salvation in diverse ways, shaken, diminished, and intermittent. So, in other words, when difficulties and trials come, sometimes it's not like that assurance is 100% on the meter all the time, right? But the overall tenor of our lives should be one in which we have an assurance and a peace with God. And what we mean by assurance of grace and salvation, we mean the believer's assurance that he is in a state of grace before God knowing that his sins are forgiven. We could even just carry this out to a secular standpoint. I mean, our culture wants, quote, peace, you know, world peace, uh, you know, those kinds of things, and they try to medicate to get it. But ultimately, they have guilt of their sin if they're not in Christ because their conscience will afflict them to uh, differing degrees. And then, likewise, there's many that are deceived that have a false security. There's mega churches that'll say, jump through this hoop and sign this card. You're a Christian, never question it again, doesn't matter how you live. And sadly, that's producing, um, it, it's not healthy for the church at large. Uh, the scriptures say in Second Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith and examine yourselves. And... As I said, much damage has been done by certain Bible teachers who um, who are not teaching the whole counsel of God. They're teaching a partial uh, counsel of God. Easy believism, you know, that reduces salvation to lifting of the hand or you know walking an aisle, or worse yet, when nowadays what people are told is, look back to your experience. When did you feel like you were? you know, had that peace with God. What was that like, that experience? And and what do they do? They they tell you to point back to something in the past rather than, Tommy, look at your life today. What evidences do you have in the last several weeks, the last several months that you are walking in the faith and experiencing assurance of salvation and peace with God? So let's read uh, paragraph one and who would like to read that for us? <clears throat> Go ahead. You have it? Although temporary believers and other ungenerated men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being the favor of God and state of salvation, 
which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus, and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good consciousness before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace, and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make, never make them ashamed. What a glorious statement. And no, now when the confession says, although temporary believers, um, knowing that this is, these are our Puritan forebears, do, is the confession stating that we believe people can be saved and lose their salvation? No. No, of course not. <laughs> so temporary believers are, we could, I could put an equal sign to the parable of the soils, where there's a sprout in the shallow soil, and it, it looks like there's life for a while, but the sun of persecution comes and it withers away. Or, likewise, the third seed that's choked out by the thorns. And so there's an appearance of faith for a season, but that ultimately withers. And so that's what the confession means here. And, and, and even it's temporary believers and other unregenerate men. So the confession makes it clear that they're not, uh, you know, Arminian and <laughs> believing that uh, people can lose their salvation. But I love in the middle here, yet as they truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life certainly be assured that they are in a state of grace. And so what a wonderful statement that is there. Of course, Jesus himself says, um, many... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform many good works? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And those words of warning from the Lord Jesus Christ should drive every person that ever hears those words of warning to the foot of the cross, to Christ. John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Now, what about those who do not have assurance? And those, uh, what are some ways of obtaining assurance of salvation? What are some means? Of course, these are going to be unfolded as we go through it, but I'll just throw that out there. What is the scripture? Well, the scriptures, yeah. Okay. So the reading of the scriptures and the hearing of the scriptures expounded are what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's huge. And when you live in a land when there's a famine for the word of God, that's not so easily obtained. What else? Perhaps like Christ said the fruits, the fruits of what you do, your labors. Like Christ said, you know, a tree by its fruit. So in an instance, like the hunger, the hunger a Christian has for the word, you know, I'm not hungry for the word, I want to serve him. Just seeing the thing the Lord has given you, like the hunger for his word, you know, you just can't help but talking about it here and there with people. Because you because of your changed life, that you are actually bearing some fruit. You're being a light to a dark world. You're doing uh, good works, as would be a couple about chapter sixteen. Um, you know these kinds of things, and they do. And we will get to that. That does build our assurance. 
But for the so-called nominal believer, the answer is not to run away, put their fingers in their ear, to seek to medicate or, or whatever, but it's to really run to Christ. Because one out of one people die and enter eternity. And so to deal with this in a flippant way, uh, for those that are on the fence, those that are outside of Christ, is has eternal consequences, really, doesn't it? And they will someday stand before that judge who has eyes as a flame of fire that will pierce through and to see every motive and hidden motive of the heart. So... <clears throat> The confession goes on to say to be certainly assured and to walk in a state of grace. And that is a wonderful thing that we have. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And how can you rejoice in the Lord always if you're in a perpetual state of doubt? Now, I'll qualify this later as far as healthy self-examination and those kinds of things. But, but we're called to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul doubles down on it, right, in Philippians 4.4. 4. And so, yes, God has provided the means where we can gain an assurance. And the, the Bible speaks much to this topic. What book of the Bible would talk about that a lot in the New Testament? Which one? First John. First John, for sure, right? So, and then even as in, in First John, there's this verse that's sometimes taken out of context, 513. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, how has that verse been misapplied? Uh, or has anybody heard that verse misapplied? Okay. Did you put the... Um they can put action before faith. And so the the salvation is based upon what I do in trusting in Christ alone. And then the evidences of faith coming after um, trusting in Christ. So it's the you know, the cart before the horse kind of idea where, you know, I just yeah. you know, and and then I'm going to be saved. I know I'm going to be saved. Yeah, so it's getting that backwards that the good work should be in response to our being regenerated rather than to earn regeneration. But that verse is sometimes quoted at big crusades, for example, when you've gone down on the field and you've said a prayer and then this verse is, is communicated. But the problem is, is that verse, so that you may know you have eternal life, comes at the end of First John and John gives certain evidences, or we might even say test, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And so, what are some of the tests that he gives in First John? We can just even turn uh, back there, because it might be helpful. There's the what you believe about Jesus. So if you believe that he's not truly the son of God, obviously there's you're not going to have assurance. But there's also the obedience test. Two, three to five. Who wants to read that? First John two, three to five. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Excellent. And then again, three, four, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Um, 
everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. That's 3 3. Now, verses 9 um, to 11 or 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. So you have this, this obedience test, but also he makes a big deal about loving the brethren. How can you say that you love God if you don't love your brothers, right? And so that comes out. And so there's, I would submit to you, three general tests is what um, most would say. And that's uh, who Jesus is and what he's done. That's important. If you've got that wrong, then you've got a false Christ, right? And am I walking in obedience, not a perfect, you know, obedience, but a general direction of that? And then the love of the brethren. Spurgeon himself said, Assurance of faith can never come by works of the law. It is an evangelical virtue and can only reach us in a gospel way. So that goes to gets to what Steve was saying there. It's we have to surrender ourselves. We're helpless. We've got nothing. We're bankrupt. We're throwing ourselves in the mercy of God. And then those works would come later. So brethren, it comes by the gospel. It's it's not only can insurance indeed be obtained by every Christian, it's the duty of Christians to pursue it. And of course, this results in that joy and peace with God that we all long for. Even the psalmist, uh, King David, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalm 17. In Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What assurance there. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 36, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. And so um, certainly this is our duty to pursue. Now, coming back to uh, the confession here. So picking it up at the yet on the fourth Uh, fourth line yet such as truly believe in the lord jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him man this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and rejoice in the hope of the glory of god which hope shall never make them ashamed james adams a pastor from arizona who ironically will be in San Diego this weekend while I'm in Arizona, but wrote an excellent booklet. Sometimes we have them on the back table, Decisional Regeneration. And it speaks to this topic of um, false assurance and true assurance of faith. Job says the hope of the godless shall perish. And so when you, you know, self-righteousness isn't the answer, you know, like the, the Pharisee, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like other men. I do this, that, this, this. I, I got my checklist and it's a mile long, you know. Uh, so that's not the way. But how do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Assurance does produce hope. Romans chapter 5, let's turn there. Romans 5, 2. <clears throat> Well, I guess one and two. Somebody want to read that for us? Five, one and two? Uh Uh-huh. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then verse 5. And hope does not put to shame, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that glorious? It's this hope does not disappoint. Um, it is something that is sure. Sinclair Ferguson has said, Faith alone justifies in Christ alone. Assurance is the enjoyment of that justification. So it's faith alone, right? In Christ alone. What is assurance? It's the enjoyment of those truths. It's actually enjoying that. And of course we know hope in the Bible is not a gee, I hope it all works out in the end. It's 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 a steadf- it's a sure, steadfast, confident expectation. In fact, uh, back in the chapter on saving faith, uh, it's it says saving grace grace may be assailed, but yet it continues to grow. Fanny Crosby, that wonderful hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation and purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed from his blood. And, you know, for a blind, um, weak, frail woman to pen those words, Fanny Crosby, it's uh, amazing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not in earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so, towards you. Now, I, I brought a copy of this book. Has anyone read this book, Heaven on Earth, or heard of it? So Thomas Brooks... Um, one of the easiest, well, not a little more difficult than Thomas Watson to read of the Puritans, but I highly, highly commend him. His six-volume set you can get, but also they've, you know, Banner of Truth has made these uh, uh, Puritan paperbacks, and this is a treatise on Christian assurance, and you can just go home and Google just the table of contents alone, the seven pages of the table of contents of this work and be edified. I remember one of the first pastor's conferences that I was at, it was on assurance, and Greg Nichols, pastor in Michigan, one of your professors, right, um, re- printed all the, printed this whole introduction, or the table of contents out, and we, we, we walked through it in one of the sessions, and it was ex- extremely edifying. And the book, this is not, this is an extra copy that I have, but it is a fascinating work, and I've got a couple quotes by him, so that's why I just brought it so you can keep an eye out for it. He says this, Assurance is glory in the bud. It is the suburbs of paradise. It is a cluster of the land of promise. It is a spark of God. It is the joy and crown of the Christian. Another Puritan, Joseph Carroll, said the greatest thing that we desire next to the glory of God is our own salvation. It's the greatest thing that we desire. And he goes on to say, the sweetest thing that we can desire is assurance of that salvation. The greatest thing, salvation, the sweetest thing is that assurance that we're in Christ. So the last phrase, which hope shall never make them ashamed, 
uh, another Puritan work, uh, John Flavel, The Touchstone of Sincerity. He says this, If any man lose an eye, an ear, a hand, a foot, God has given those members in double to each person. But the soul is only one. And to be damned, you have not another one to be saved. Oh, therefore, be restless until you know your soul is out of danger. But those who are truly in Christ uh, have this assurance, and it will not make them ashamed. Well, let's read uh, the second paragraph. Any questions on the first paragraph? I know we're going relatively quick. All right, let's read uh, paragraph two. And Steve, would you read that for us? The certainty is not a very conjecture, improbable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the law of the Spirit unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God and as a fruit thereof keeping the heart both humble and holy thank you that's I think the key paragraph here Um, and of this particular chapter chapter 18 of the four and it's not bare conjecture or probable persuasion okay uh grounded on a fallible hope but an infallible assurance of faith founded on what? Your emotional experience? No. Upon what? All the promises of God but the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and on all of the rest of those the testimony of the spirit the spirit of adoption that we are the children of God Infallible means in Latin it's that it's not deceiving. And so this is an infallible hope. It's a it's not a, a deceiving type of hope. First John four sixteen, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, and God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So there are some who say that even pres- that it's presumptuous to say that you know that, that you have assurance of salvation. There are some that deny this assurance, and what groups might those be? Many, many. Huh? I said Arminian. Oh yeah, Ar- yeah, Arminian. Well, many would be right too. <laughs> Anything includes any work. That's right. System of salvation. Yes. He's going to have to. He's going to have to say that because it's presumptuous to say that your works. Good enough. You're talking about believers or, or non-believers? Well, it's kind of both. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah, so Catholics. Those, exactly. Yeah. They get angry if you talk about assurance. Yeah. Right. Because it's in their dogma that you can't they, have they that see assurance. Huh? They see it as prideful. Right. And they understand that my assurance is not based on, in me. It's in Christ. Right. Yeah, any so all the cults. Right? Have you ever talked to a, a like one of these cult members that actually have oh a well grounded assurance? If if you actually dialogue with them long enough, you you find that they're on a shaky like they really can't say for sure. Um, Islam, 
you've got the five pillars of Islam, and then you just hope in the end that Allah, right? So you've got all of those, but then certainly Arminians as well. I'm saved now by virtue of the work of Christ, but yet they would say you can lose your salvation. And so, um, but the Roman Catholic Church on the Council of Trent states, uh, which the 16th century dogma, um, no one can know with certainty of faith, which can, cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. And what does that do? That produces a constant fear for the one billion plus people that are in the Roman Catholic Church. Because they never have that assurance. Am I going to be good enough? The Roman Catholic Church is wrong when it says that. In fact, they would go on to say that it's a damnable evil to say um, that you can have this assurance. And yet, in Hebrews and in other places, and for example, Hebrews 10.35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's also the New Testament is constant to rejoice yeah right which is yeah hope a hope that does not disappoint it's not it's not a it's not a questionable hope right well, even in the old testament you have believers like david showing his assurance that you know he will see him you know well when he lost his his son off of the adulterous you know, relationship that he would see him um, but also just his confidence of being justified but there are seasons to be sure that in a sense, for example, Psalm 51, you know, after the adultery and murder, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I think we can probably read into that, that there wasn't a whole lot of assurance during that season. You know, he was arrogant and proud that he was blind to it when Nathan, the prophet, comes and makes it clear to him what he's done. Uh, he's finally broken and it's, you know, yet he pens that, that phrase and. That phrase is encouraging. Let's turn to Hebrews 6, please. Marvin, do you have it? Can you read uh, 11 and 12 for us? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those of faith and patience inherit the promises. Excellent. And I should have had you start in verse 10, but uh, God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And then it's, and then we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize that fur, full assurance of hope until the end. And that phrase, so that you will not become sluggish, I think is, could be parenthetical. In other words, you know, just picture that in parentheses or as a purpose closet because if we become sluggish, we become unproductive in the kingdom. We're, we're, we're drugged down, you know, we got weights on our feet. And, and, um, but he wants us to have this full assurance. And uh, the, the Greek word literally means a state of complete certainty. <laughs> Of full assurance, absolutely certain. It only occurs four times in the Greek New Testament. And so even writing to the young church in Thessalonica, Paul says in those opening verses, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's that word, with assurance. An 
absolute certainty it came. We saw the transformation that happened. And here it's used of this assurance of hope. And then verse 19, um, down at the bottom, Aaron, you want to read that? Hebrews 6. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunners has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Most excellent. So this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It's like it just keeps building, right? Now, this phrase of the faith founded upon the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, that, that particular phrase is added by the Baptists as we try to point that out as we're going through the um, largely um, the 1689's um, a republication of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1646. However, about I don't know what the exact percentage, 10 to 20% of it, the Baptists do reword and make clarifications and add and, of course, fix the baptism, <laughs> the, the sacraments. But uh, they, they repair. But, uh, the, but this, this is, a, and I, I, think, I think that's a, a wonderful phrase, that it's an infallible assurance founded on, and that it's on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That makes it sure that if Christ is a phony, then yeah, I shouldn't have assurance of salvation. But if his work is indeed done and right and and, and, uh, acceptable in the eyes of God, I can have assurance. That's my favorite little phrase there as well, because it also is the Christ that's revealed in the gospel. Yes. The Christ that that somebody's told you about or the Christ that this preacher's told you about. You know, it's the Christ that's revealed right here. Because there's a lot of people preaching Christ. It's not really Christ. You know I mean? Or even worse, yes. A, a, yeah, a, a Christ. It's not the Christ of your own imaginations exactly. from your own possible interpretations of yeah. what I've heard, this and that, but it's revealed in the gospel. I which struggled with my dad. I told you I was going to do yeah. family worship on Romans uh, 5, where we were just reading yeah, yeah. a bit ago. My dad, um, he believes he's, he has his own thing with God. And uh, I've been doing family worship at home and needing to portion of scripture, letting me kind of revealing things to him that I know he doesn't know. Because he's not really, my dad's not illiterate, but he's not really uh, a good reader. And he doesn't understand. He's, mm-hmm. He only has a very limited education. So it's been really a blessing to be able to go through the word with him. And, um, and he's been receiving it well, too. He's not, like I'm always, my dad's always kind of been a know-it-all because him and God have their own thing and so he comes up with this advice that's really unbiblical and stuff and, <laughs> you know and, and he, but just through our family worship I've just been watching him like be humbled and um, being able to take him to the word of God and point things out to him without you know like being critical to him just just in the family worship setting so I'm just leading family worship I'm not saying hey dad you're wrong I'm right you know, look here we're not doing that I'm just leading family worship and, uh, and uh, it's been really really neat to watch him to, uh, to acknowledge certain things that such an awesome testimony and it's and yeah we don't have you don't have to go about you're gonna he's gonna shut down if you go about it the other way oh, yeah. anyway um you know but if he says something that's off keter you answer with truth you know from the word or whatever yeah, I but just asking, do you, you know, and, and the power the beginning is like do you believe this is holy inspired this is the word of god and he said yeah that's where we start there, <laughs> yeah right? that's where we start this that's right start. that's good other thoughts on this infallible assurance of faith 
think it's comforting when we think about what Jesus actually said. We think about John 15 when he said, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And then um, in verse uh, 11, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Again, it's pointing to this this, this idea of confidence, and, and, and then confidence leading to joy, you know. Uh, the more we know who God is and what he has said to us, uh, the more confidence we have, and the more we can live out this idea of living, walking by faith and not by sight. Yeah. What God has said is His Spirit reminding us of that, and then putting um, our faith to feet. Yeah, good. I yeah. get a lot of assurance from the high priestly prayer of myself. You know, um, just hearing hearing Him pray for us. Right. Yeah, John seventeen. Um, the and and you know when it says the on the blood and the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, we know that that's the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that's why it gives an assurance. Because if it's his righteousness imputed to our account, I, you know, if that wasn't clearly revealed in the Bible and we had to guess about it, I'd struggle with assurance, you know. And I still struggle with assurance sometimes. I think that's that's common for it go through seasons and that kind of thing. But the overall lion's share of our life should be a well-grounded assurance. But it's that imputed righteousness. And this is why doctrine matters, right? And so if you're in a flimsy church where it's just Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and, okay, maybe you say that's great, and maybe you kind of believe that or whatever, you know, you raise a hand. But if you don't really understand that, wait, it's his God's law. How do I even measure up to God's law? Well, wait a minute. The, f- the fool, the whole counsel of God is that all of our sin he paid for, which sometimes they'll get right, but it's the his righteousness is imputed to our account. And, and if we have an understanding of that, we believe it as it's revealed in the word of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the most clear verse that communicates both of those in one verse. Um, we can have assurance John Calvin said, let us not seek any other ground of assurance than God's own testimony in the Bible. Um, of course, he's speaking against other systems in the Catholic Church. And so uh, Hebrews 7, verse 22, uh, another um, Christ is our high priest. <clears throat> so much the more. Also, Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, his priesthood permanently, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's where I find my greatest assurance is that's why doctrine is important. I do find in the fact that the new covenant is unconditional. And matter of fact, speaking of the means of grace, uh, the Lord's Supper is always reasonable. It gives me a lot of assurance when we especially do the wine, because it says, you know, this is in my uh, this is a new covenant in my blood. And I just find great assurance because there's nothing I can do to break it. That new covenant is sealed by the blood of, of Christ. So that's why. I, I find great assurance. It's um, 
that covenant, you know, it's a, it's an unbreakable promise. Yeah, that's and, good. Uh, that's good. You know, there's no, you know, there's no way to, to break it, and it just gives you great comfort. You know? And that's the writer of the Hebrews in, in Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have this confidence to enter to the holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's how we enter. It's by the blood. Just as they took the blood, you know, and sprinkled it all over the uh, altar and all of that, it's weird. the blood has been applied to us. Now, there's all these perversions out there. You can sometimes when I travel, uh, we don't have cable at home, but if, if I'm somewhere and we're in a, a hotel room or something besides trying to catch up on the news for a little bit, I'll find one of the God channels and and then uh, <laughs> and then my blood pressure goes up and then I go pray. But, you know, you have Peter Popoff with the miracle spring water, you know, automatic healing and prosperity for all. And the phone numbers flash in there and, you know, the guy just looks like he's out of a Cracker Jack box to begin with. But, I, you know, it's... Anyway, but, uh, you know, if, if this stuff's really... It, why not send gallons of it over to India, where you know, in Africa, where people are suffering by the millions and millions? Why does the heat What's that? Why does the heat go there to do? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Too busy in those. Yeah, that's right. Joel Olstein, your best knife, best life now. It's all about you, not the glory of God. If your doctrine's wrong, you're not going to have assurance. But positively, he goes on to say this next phrase, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit of which the promises are made. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is a whole other aspect. John, or Jesus said in John 6, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So when God regenerates us and causes us to be born again and we embrace Christ, the Spirit effectually calls us in time. We looked at that some months back, effectual calling. We know that not, you know, that says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So let's turn to Colossians two. <clears throat> Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. Who has not read that would like to read? Gabe, you haven't read yet. 2, 3. Uh, sorry, 2, 2. 2, 2, and 3. Colossians 2, 2, and 3. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this idea that their hearts may be encouraged. How is it going to be encouraged? Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from a what? Full assurance and understanding. So there you have the word again, assurance, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery. And that is Christ himself. So it's not a Nancy Drew mystery. It's something that has now been revealed supernaturally to us, right? Who Christ is. And of course, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <laughs> Peter tells us to be all the more diligent about examining ourselves. 
And also, repentance is part of this, isn't it? I mean, when we first come uh, to Christ, the inward evidence of the grace of the Spirit, which promises are made, and the testimony of adoption. And, of course, adoption is, is glorious. Um, 1 John three eighteen and 19, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we assure our hearts before him and so this biblical doctrine of assurance or of adoption uh, is very comforting as well and key passages Romans 8 which are listed there in the confession uh, 1 John would be another one Galatians 4 even Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This is something that pleasured God to do. <clears throat> Romans 8, we won't turn there. I think most of us are familiar with it, but 8.14-17, to 17, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit. Lost my place. Yeah, spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, what? Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, then heirs also, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, if we turn there, we could look at this, but... I started at 8.14, and 8.13 is a very important key here. And he says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so there's a caveat there that if we're, if we're living, if we're mortifying sin, and, and we recognize the battle of the flesh and the Spirit like we talked about, and we're mortifying those sins, that can be one of the best assurances of salvation, uh, that we're, you know, progressing, you know, in the battle. That we see sin by God's grace, weakened a little bit more today than it was last month or last year or five years ago. Um, again, quoting Thomas Brooks, uh, though no man's no man merits assurance by his obedience, yet God usually crowns obedience with assurance. And so we can't merit it by our strict living, our monkish type living or whatever you know that how some have tried we can't merit that but god usually crowns that obedience with assurance romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknew he predestined to become conformed to his image so for the christian the dominion of sin uh, has been broken the power of sin's been broken but we still battle this remaining sin as we go through this life so this assurance of salvation should not produce an arrogance that's something I wanted to qualify because sometimes you'll hear certain Bible teachers here and there where there's an arrogance but it actually produces the fruit of humility Uh, It's a recognition, and that's the last phrase here. And as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. 
Isn't that glorious? It shouldn't produce uh, an, an arrogance. And quoting Brooks again, a well-grounded assurance is always attended by three fair handmaids, love, humility, and holy joy. So what do you guys think of that last phrase, of that fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy? I mean, if you understand it, you would have to keep you humble because it's predicated on the idea that Christ must keep us because we cannot keep ourselves. Even after being shown the glory of God, our flesh would still wander away. So therefore... It, you can, I mean, if you understand that, you must be humility because you're thinking, uh, even after God has revealed Himself to me, I'm still there's still enough sin in my flesh that I would still wander away from truth and truth apart from God's grace. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how the placement of 18 is right before 17. How we talked about the perseverance of the saints because the confession is just one of the things we've said. The confession builds upon itself, and so having set forth perseverance of the saints that no man can or ever will ultimately fall from god now comes this assurance and so so yeah what's the the only response to that and or even in this one paragraph what's the only response to imputed righteousness that your bankruptcy has now been filled with all the riches of righteousness that you ever need to stand before a holy god that produces humility anything else is just doesn't make any sense whatsoever there's there's something twisted along the way if, if somebody can come up with something else and of course the argument's been made ever since the reformation that well but if you if people understand justification by faith alone then they're going to live like the devil now is that true You've heard those accusations no the irony is it is those who have a well-grounded assurance and understand that that their salvation is altogether, it's an alien righteousness, it's not from them, are the ones that produce good fruits unto God, which add to this assurance. And lastly, uh, Romans 6, Paul dealing with the glorious truth of justification, as we just read in Romans 5, but 3, 4, and 5. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. One of some of the strongest words in the Greek to communicate. Absolutely not. Are you off your rocker? You know, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So though we still struggle with sin, it is not our desire to uh, be in sin. So we want to be those that examine ourselves on a regular basis, as it says in 2 Peter 1.10, 2 Corinthians 13.5, to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. It's healthy to do that during certain seasons, that when you can get that solitude like we've been talking about uh, in the Elijah series, you know, uh, some solitude away from everything else um, with God and to examine yourself but to remind yourself of the promises and to come away with a well grounded assurance Amen final thoughts we're going to have to finish uh, uh, 3 and 4 next time I I think it's a, a